Please turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 3. Psalm 3, we'll be reading the entire psalm. This is God's holy, inerrant, powerful, transformative word of God. Please give it your full attention. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be on your people. Okay. Bear with me, but allow me to make one more brief observation about this most recent election. Last week we looked at Psalm 2 and we talked about how that psalm addresses something that this election had showed us about our own country, our own society, that we are a very divided people. Well, as we look at Psalm 3 this week, I'd like for us to reflect on how this recent election also revealed to us what a fearful people we are. Before the election, when one of the two candidates was fully expected to win easily, I had a whole group of friends and family members that were very fearful about their future. And then, after we were all surprised by which candidate actually won, Lo and behold, I had a whole different group of family and friends who became very fearful about the future. This tells me something about the society in which we live, is that there is a tremendous amount of insecurity. People are fearful. We've lost something that we used to have in our worldview, in our sense of who we are and what we're about. The post-election fashion trend is for some to wear safety pins. And it's meant to be a statement in favor of those who are most vulnerable in our society. But I think, again, what this has shown is that we all feel vulnerable. I want to stand with those who feel vulnerable after this election. I want to stand with those who felt vulnerable before the election when they thought it was going to go the other way. I want to talk to all of these people and say, there is no safety in this world, ultimately. And there's only one place you can go to find the safety that you deeply long for. That's what Psalm 3 is about. The Lord is my refuge. That's the key phrase from Psalm 3. The Lord is my refuge. Isn't that such a common theme to so many of these psalms? These psalms are given to us as songs for the heart, as prayers to sustain us in the difficulties of living in a fallen world. And isn't that the message of so many of them? The Lord is my refuge. The Lord is my rock. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my hiding place. The Lord is my 
fortress. The Lord is my high tower. The Lord is my stronghold. These messages are repeated over and over and over because the Spirit of God knows that we need this message hammered into us every day. The Lord is my refuge. I think that's one of the effects of living in a culture that throughout its history has known so much peace and prosperity and stability is that we have taken these psalms for granted. We've not really appreciated them. We've not really sensed the need for them because we found our peace and security and refuge in this world, in this life, in our stock portfolios or our careers or our families. But as things get more insecure, psalms like these become very, very important to God's people. David, in this psalm, it says that David wrote this psalm. We trust the title. It's, it's accurate that David is the one who wrote this psalm, and he wrote it to show us how to face our fears in this world. That's what the psalm's about, how to face our fears of physical dangers, our fears of emotional dangers, our fear of relational dangers, our fear of financial dangers. How do we face those fears? Fear is a lack of faith. How do we address that lack? What we have in this psalm is a cry from the midst of a deep, painful betrayal in the life of David. The title of the psalm gives its historical context. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. One of the most painful incidents in the life of King David. Matthew Henry says, the title of this psalm is a key hung ready at the door. In other words... It's the key to understanding what David is really talking about. So we do need to delve into the historical context and when Dave, David wrote this, or at least the period of time that Dave, David wrote this about. And the content of this psalm really reads like a journal entry, doesn't it? Of what it felt like to be in the midst of this great loss and betrayal. The events that are referred to here, the historical context we find in 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 18. Remember that early in David's reign, after God had called him as his king, his choice to be king over his people, placed him on his throne over his people, that David fell into sin, great sin. Fell into sin of lust, adultery, and ultimately even murder. And remember, the Lord sent his prophet to David to bring the word of the Lord to him. And this is what the prophet Nathan said to David. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. What happened next was that Absalom, David's son, killed his brother Amnon, and David banished him from the kingdom. But David was gracious. And he allowed Absalom to come back into the kingdom, back to Jerusalem. And strategically speaking, it was a big mistake. Because Absalom was a handsome, powerful, charismatic young man. And he started a grassroots movement among the people to make him the king in place of his father David. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 6, So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He stole their hearts from David. Absalom went to Hebron, which had been known as the city of David, 
He went to Hebron and he had himself proclaimed as the king. He recruited one of David's closest advisors, a man named Ahithophel, and he formed a transitional government to replace David's and began to plot to march to Jerusalem to take over. When David heard about the coup attempt, it was so sudden, so unexpected, and Absalom was so effective in stealing the hearts of the people that David knew he had no chance to stand against his son, and so he fled. Snuck out the back door in the dark of night with his closest family and friends. Absalom came to Jerusalem, took over the throne, took over the palace, took David's illicit concubines up onto the roof of the palace and slept with them in front of all the people to humiliate his father. And so the prophecy of Nathan came, through, came true to the letter. At that point, Absalom began to plot to kill his father David. And this is the historical context of this psalm. This was a dark night in the soul of King David. And so he says in verse 1, O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me. Can you feel the pain of betrayal that David is going through as he writes those words? The heartache of being betrayed by your own son, being betrayed by your friends and your advisors, being betrayed by the people. He'd lost everything and he was running for his life. And so he cries out in lament in these first two verses, but do you notice that there's a clear break in the psalm between verse 2 and verse 3? A, to a total change in tone from a cry of despair to an affirmation of faith and a statement of hope in the rest of the psalm. And that's what I'd like to explore this morning. What brought about that change from verse 2 to verse 3? How do we take refuge in the Lord even in the midst of dire circumstances? What does it mean to say the Lord is my refuge? What does it mean to say he's my rock? What does it mean to say he's my fortress when times are extremely difficult all around us? What does that look like? How do we get there? How do we get to the place where we have that kind of peace and that kind of a lack of fear? I think David exhibits for us two steps in this psalm. The first step is that we rest in the Lord's forgiveness. We look to the Lord to renew us in the awareness of our salvation and our restoration relationship with him. Do you notice that this despair doesn't, you know, in the psalm it looks like it immediately flips a switch and all of a sudden he's hopeful and joyful and at rest and without fear, but we know it doesn't happen that way. There's a process involved. And we know from reading the historical account back in 2 Samuel 15 that there was a time of grieving in the midst of his flight from the city of Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 30, this is what it says. David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up, weeping as they went. You can understand the grief, but what was really going on in the mind and heart of David as he is grieving with his head down and covered, running from his son? What's going through his head? Well, I think we get an indication from the historical account there as well. 
There's one incident that kind of shows what's going on in the mind and heart of David at this moment. You remember David took the throne. David was God's chosen king, but he took the throne from Saul, who was the people's choice to be the king. Well, as David is fleeing the city, one of Saul's descendants, who obviously has some issues with bitterness, comes running up after David, up alongside his company of his people, and he starts throwing stones at David and cursing him. And we have a record of what he said over in 2 Samuel 16. Let me read that to you. This is verse 7. And Shimei, Saul's descendant, Shimei said as he cursed David, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. We were at the hockey game the other night, and my wife leaned over and said, I hate this tradition. We love all the chants and the songs there, but she says, I hate this tradition, because when Penn State hockey team scores, all the student section, which was not as there were a lot of them gone because of Thanksgiving break, but there were still a lot of them there. The whole student section starts doing a chant, it's all your fault, it's all your fault, at the poor goalie who let the goal in. It's all your fault, it's all your fault. That's really what Shimei is saying to David here. What's happening to you is all your fault. You've brought it upon yourself, David. Certainly he's blaming it for his actions against Saul, which we know were led by God, but think what that did in the soul of David. Isn't that what happens often when your circumstances turn south? Is you go into a period of introspection and you say, is this my fault? Have I brought this on myself? And David seems to do this. Let me, re let me continue reading from 2 Samuel 16. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. Don't you love loyal friends like that? <laughs> but the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life, and how much more now may this Benjaminite let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. You see, David's wrestling with that. Have I brought this on myself? Is the Lord angry at me? Am I being punished? Look at verse 2, how it lines up with the historical account in verse 2. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. These I don't know if he's thinking of Shimei in, in particular or just his accusers, but he's saying, people are saying that God is mad at me. People are saying that God is not with me, that God has rejected me, that God is punishing me. Have you ever had that thought when life gets hard? God is punishing me. At this point in the psalm, I, always, I said there was a break between verses 2 and 3. You notice between verses 2 and 3, there's a word, selah. S-E-L-A-H. We don't know what that word means. It's a Hebrew word. That's why it's translated directly from the Hebrew into the English. We don't know what it means. Speculation is, I think the majority opinion, is it was a musical notation. It was a, a note there for the musicians as the song was being played. 
But almost every commentator believes that the purpose of the Selah was to give you a moment to deeply consider what has just been said, a, a moment for meditation. In my era of songs, that was called a guitar solo. In ancient Hebrew, it was Selah. Take a moment and consider what has just been said. Having meditated upon it, was God angry at him? Was God had God rejected him? Was God punishing him? What's his conclusion? Verse 3, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. That's his conclusion. Yes, David was an adulterer. David was a murderer. But David knew the grace of God. David knew the promises of redemption. Let me just remind you of a couple of very familiar psalms that David wrote after his great sins. First of all, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my sin and cleanse me from, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He goes on later to say, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. There is his hope, is that he prayed for the Lord to cover his sin, to atone for his sin, to provide for his sin in a just way to save him. And then we have Psalm 32 where he rejoices in that forgiveness that he received. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I acknowledge my sin to you, O Lord, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's why David can now, in the midst of extremely difficult circumstances, say, the Lord is a shield around me. The Lord is my salvation. The Lord is my hope. The Lord has forgiven me. He rejoices in that reconciled relationship that has happened by God's grace. Nathaniel, or Nathan had told him that there would be bad consequences to his sin. He said, the sword is not going to depart from your house. But David knew that he'd been forgiven for his sin. Just because the Lord forgives us doesn't mean that there aren't consequences to our sins. That's a life lesson you better learn early in your discipleship. Just because the Lord completely, absolutely forgives you of your sin, that doesn't mean that you're not going to have to deal with the consequences of your sin. And that's the distinction that David's making here. I am forgiven. The Lord is a shield about me. He is my salvation. But yet I have to deal with these consequences. He says, Lord, you are my glory. He's recognizing there that the only glory he wants is the glory of the presence of the Lord with him. Any glory given by man, any status in this world given by man can be taken away in an instant. And David's watched it all go away in a moment. And then he goes on to say, you are the lifter of my head. Remember that image as they left the city of Jerusalem, David and his friends and family weeping with their head down and covered. And here is a statement of faith. He says, I'm looking to you, Lord. You are the lifter of my head. What does that mean to lift the head? Well, if you're looking down in grief over your circumstances and your sins, it's a picture of shame and guilt. And to say, Lord, you're the lifter of my head is saying, you're the one who takes away my shame and guilt. 
I can't do anything with my shame and guilt. You can take it away. You are the lifter of my head. When we lift our head, we see his smiling face. His smiling face. He's not angry at us. He's not punishing us. He's forgiven us. We are seen as righteous in his sight. Our guilt and shame is gone as far as east is from west. And so when you're in difficult circumstances, you need to ask yourself one question as you enter into your sila moment, your moment to meditate on what this says about your relationship with God. You need to say, is the Lord with me? Is the Lord for me? Is he the shield about me? He, is he my glory? Is he the lifter of my head? Is the Lord with you? And if you have trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then the answer is yes. And the promises in the word of God that are given to people who can honestly say, in the midst of any circumstances, the Lord is with me, the promises are incredible. Let me just read one passage for you that's very well known to you, but listen to it in light of the kind of dilemma that David is facing. Listen to the promise to those who put their trust in Christ. David put his trust in Christ, the future Messiah that was sent to provide this atonement, to provide this reconciliation with God. Listen to the promises. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Lord is a shield around me. He is our salvation. That was David's confidence. We need to rest in the redemption we have in Christ in the most difficult of circumstances in order to do away with fear. Secondly, we need to rest in the Lord's resources. Another one of the repeated phrases throughout the Psalter is wait upon the Lord. When in your distress, don't run out to deal with it and try to fix things in the flesh and your own resources. Wait upon the Lord. Look to him for his deliverance. Look to him for him to provide. And so in verse 4, David says, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Now what's the holy hill he refers to? Obviously that's Mount Zion, the hill in Jerusalem where the temple was built. Where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. The symbols of God's redeeming covenant relationship with his people. He called, he prayed to the God who has promised to meet with his people where the blood of atonement was shed at the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. And this is an important, I think, reference if you put it back in its historical context because another interesting incident happened while David was fleeing the city of Jerusalem. There were a group of priests who were loyal to David. And they came running up to David as they were fleeing the city. And they said to David that they had 
gotten the Ark of the Covenant out of the temple and they brought it with them. And listen to what David said to these priests. He says, carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. There you see in David the, the opposite attitude of the Israelites back in the days of Samuel. Remember, they lost a battle against the Philistines. And they said, ah, you know what? The reason we lost the battle is we didn't have the Ark of the Covenant with us. So go get that Ark of the Covenant. We'll take it with us into battle, and then we'll win. And they lost. And the Ark of the Covenant was captured. And the whole lesson to the people of Israel was, you don't use me. You don't manipulate me. You don't, I'm not here to do your agenda. It's not about whether I'm on your side or not in the battle. It's about whether you're on my side or not in the battle. You need to trust me, not your own efforts to win your battles. David had learned that lesson from history. And so when they said, hey, we're okay because we got the Ark of the Covenant with us. And David says, this is not about us manipulating the Ark of the Covenant. This is about who's on the Lord's side. He trusted in the Lord. He says, the Lord, if, 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 if I'm where the Lord wants me to be, he will put me where I need to be. If that's back on the throne, then I trust him. He will do it. Then look at verses 5 and 6. This is the result of finally being at peace and having the fears dissipate. He says, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of the many thousands of people who set themselves against me all around. In the midst of these extremely trying circumstances, he laid down and he went to sleep and he slept like a baby. Because he was at peace. Because he was not tormented by his fears any longer. Do you remember Jesus sleeping in the bottom of the boat while the disciples were terrified at the storm on the Sea of Galilee? Jesus trusted the Father. He trusted the Father's power to do his will. He trusted in the mission that the Father had given to him, just like David did. I have heard that about 40% of adults in America have trouble falling asleep at night, and 50% of American adults have trouble staying asleep once they go to sleep at night. And I know there's all kinds of physical, physiological, chemical reasons why people have, you know, have, what's the word, insomnia, insomnia, sorry. You know, there's, there's all kinds of reasons for that, but I, I swear, the main reason, at least in my own life, the main reason is fear. I know what it feels like. If I wake up in the middle of the night, I try really hard. I try to be really mentally disciplined and not think about what I have to do the next day. Because if I do, I start thinking about my to-do list, or I think about the people I need to confront, or issues that I have to fix, I start to get anxious. And if I start to get anxious, that adrenaline starts flowing, and my body won't relax, and I can't get back to sleep. You know what the best sleep aid in that situation is? It's not chemical. It's prayer. That's my experience. Pray. I rarely, rarely finish those prayers at night because I fall asleep before I'm finished. Because it's about fear. And it's the same thing in a very small way to what David's doing here. I cried to the Lord. He heard me. I am at peace in the Lord no matter what my circumstances are going to be. This psalm, Psalm 3, is called a morning psalm. 
because it talks about waking in the morning, what rested and refreshed and at peace and without fear. Psalm 4, interestingly, is an evening psalm, so remember that. Read Psalm 3 in the morning, read Psalm 4 at night. Psalm 4 verse 8 says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. That's the voice of faith. Reminds me of that old prayer that we used to teach our children. Don't hear it much anymore, but you know, the one that goes, Now I lay me down to sleep. Gets a little dark after that, doesn't it? If I die before I wake, I'm like, what are we doing to our kids, you know? Making them think about their death before they go to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to take. I used to think that it was a really a bad prayer. My, my parents taught it to me. I didn't teach it to my kids or didn't use it with my kids. I thought, what a terrible thing to put in a kid's head before he goes to sleep. But I was thinking about it more this week in light of this psalm, and I'm thinking, you know, maybe it wasn't so bad after all. Because if we can teach our kids to not fear death, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I guarantee you they aren't going to fear anything else in this world because death is our greatest enemy. Let me just touch briefly on verses 7 and 8 because this is how David wraps up. He's dealt with it. He's at peace. He's slept well. He's got a good night's sleep. His fears are gone. His trust in the Lord is renewed and strengthened. And then he ends... By dealing with the anger, we didn't, I don't have much time to dwell on this, but if your son and your advisors and large majority of your people reject you and you're at, you've lost everything you have and you're fleeing for your life, if that's the state, you're going to be angry. David would understandably be justifiably angered at the injustice of what's happened to him. How does he deal with that anger? He's dealt with his fear, but how does he deal with his anger? Now, verse 7 sounds harsh, but put it in context. He says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, and you break the teeth of the wicked. Now, that sounds horrible, but it's a metaphor. He's portraying his enemies, of whom, you know, of which one of his son is one of them. His enemies are like a ravenous beast trying to devour him. And his trust is in the Lord to break the teeth of his enemies, to render them powerless to destroy him. It's a statement of faith. And what he's saying there is that justice will be done. See, that's the beauty of the gospel. Is it helps you to not only not fear your difficult circumstances, but it also helps you to deal with the sins of others that cause you to suffer in this world. His son had betrayed him. His son had taken everything from him. And he was able to deal with that in terms of the justice of God, knowing that every sin that has ever been committed on the face of this planet will be punished, either in eternity in hell or at the cross of Jesus Christ. Every sin will be punished. David is basically alluding to that here. Either his enemies are going to pay for everything they've done so he can be at peace, and not feel like he has to retaliate, that he has to fix it, that he has to deal with it, because God will deal with them. But he may pardon them. And I'm sure in the depths of his heart, it was his prayer that God would pardon his son Absalom. But either way, either in just punishment or the justice of the gospel, where God is shown both to be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ, that sin is dealt with. That takes away your anger. 
David has showed us how to get rid of your fear. He showed us how to get rid of your anger. And then verse 8 is the victory cry. While he's still on the run, he says, salvation is of the Lord. Spurgeon said that this is the sum and substance of Calvinistic doctrine. Salvation is of the Lord. Doesn't depend on me. I can't do anything. It's of the Lord. He begins it. He plans it. He begins it. He ends it. I trust in the Lord. That's his victory cry. I'm sure you've all seen that ubiquitous Geico commercial that was on. I haven't seen it recently, but I got so sick of it a while ago. It was a parody of horror movies. You had these four teenagers running through the field in panic away from something or someone. And they come into a clearing and there's a spooky old house over there. And one of the four teenagers points at it and says, let's run over there and let's go hide in the attic. And one of the other teenagers says, no, no, let's go hide in the basement. And one of the other ones says, no, no, let's go over there and hide in that shed behind the chainsaws. And the commercial actually ends with them saying, let's head to the cemetery. And the tagline, if you haven't seen it, if you're one of the two people in the world that hasn't seen it, the tagline is, if you're in a horror movie, you make poor decisions. It's what you do. I thought of that commercial as I was digging into this text this week because the way I would paraphrase that tagline is this. Outside of God's grace, outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ, sinners in fear always make poor decisions. They flee to the wrong place. They flee to alcohol. They flee to drugs. They flee to pornography. They flee to illicit sex. They flee to immersing themselves in their career. Instead of fleeing to the one safe place, which is Christ, the Lord is our refuge. There's an old story I heard early in my ministry, and it, it's a powerful visual image that has stuck with me ever since. I've, I've thought about it often in, in the last few decades. The story is told about, uh, in 1949, there was a big wildfire out in Montana it was called the Man Gulch Fire. And what they did is they, they, they dropped uh, firefighters, or they called them uh, smoke jumpers. They, they, they parachuted them in near the fire so that they could go into this remote place and fight the fire and keep it from getting to civilized places. And of the 16 men that jumped in that, in that uh, event, six, out of the 16, 13 of them perished in the fire because the fire suddenly got whipped up by the winds and took off in a way that they didn't expect and they were trapped. 13 of the 16 died. But what fascinates me is the story of one of those uh, smoke jumpers, a man named um, Wagner Dodge. And he, the way he escaped that fire is now actually taught to firefighters as, as a means to survive. It's called an escape fire. He had a wall of flames coming at him and it was within 100 yards of him. And what he did was he had a field of grass in front of him. He took out his matches and started a fire and started a fire in the field so that the grass fire would burn over the field. And then before the flames got to him, he ran to the middle, middle of that burned out field, laid face down on the ground, and the wildfire went all around him and kept going. And he was safe in the middle of the burned patch. To me, that's always been such a vivid picture of the gospel. The fires of God's judgment, his righteous judgment, are coming. God's wrath must be satisfied. There's only one safe space, and it's where 
the fire of his wrath is already burned at the cross of Jesus Christ. Run to the cross. It is the safe place. And at that safe place, you will find the peace and rest for your souls, even while you still have to suffer. And you will still have to suffer in this world. Our Lord promised us that. But because of the cross, he's not angry with us. He's not punishing us. He's strengthening our faith, which is the most valuable possession we have. In Romans 8, that passage I read just a few moments ago, it says that we're like sheep for the slaughter every day of our lives in this fallen world. We live under the threat of disaster. We live under the threat of accident. We live under the threat of terminal illness. We live under the threat of persecution. We live under the threat of conflict. We live under the threats all the time. But the Lord is our refuge. And we are safe at the foot of the cross. And we will be delivered. There's no need to fear. There's no need to be angry at the injustice. Christ has fixed all of that. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for living in fear. The anxieties, what we call stress, the fears that trouble us, that paralyze us at times, that make us ill, that restrict us, that cause us to retreat. Forgive us for those fears, Lord. Fill us with the gift of faith. Draw our focus to the cross of Christ. May our fears dissipate and may our joy increase as we do what David did and make the Lord our refuge. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.